0: This is the documentary and one from RTE in Ireland. In the hills of the Cooley Peninsula in County Louth is an old stone cottage with red window frames and a half door. Today it is owned by documentary maker Chris Nickel, but one of its previous owners was a world-renowned psychiatrist named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was the person who came up with the famous five stages of grief model. In this documentary, we unravel Elizabeth's fascinating life story and her relationship with Ireland. From the documentary on one and narrated by Chris Nicol, this is The Life and Living Lady.
1: I'm just coming down the lane into a garden. On the left is a stream flowing down the side of the garden. And in front, I can just see the blue of Carlingford Lock and the Mourne Mountains above it. And then on the right is our cottage. Small windows, slate roof, and a red half door. My name is Chris Nickel, and to me, it was only a coincidence. But in 2016, my wife and I move into a cottage in the Cooley Mountains in North County, Louth, and on the land registry folio, we find a familiar name, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross.
2: I have a special interview today. One of the world's leading experts on death and dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Hello and
0: welcome. 30 years ago, Swiss psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Elizabeth began a study of death. Suisa. And now
1: she's a worker. la doctora Kubler-Ross. Kubler-Ross. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is famous for a five-stage psychological model you'll probably recognize. Here's Oprah Winfrey introducing it.
2: In it, Elizabeth identified what she called the five stages of death. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance.
1: First published in the late 60s, her five-stages model transformed how much of the world thinks of death and dying. In the decades since, They've become a kind of cultural phenomena, repeated, and sometimes parodied, far and wide.
3: You can expect to go through five stages. The first is denial. No way, because I'm not dying. Second is anger.
1: Maybe it's the novelty that someone famous once owned our house. What's after fear? Bargaining. Doc, you gotta get me out of this. I'll make it worth your while. Or because, like her, I'm not Irish, but have made a home here.
3: Finally... Acceptance. Well, we all gotta go jump time. Mr. Simpson, your progress astounds
1: me. Or maybe it is more than coincidence, which I'm pretty sure the eccentric Elizabeth would have believed.
4: I'm coming all dressed up for you in blue jeans because my luggage didn't make it. That's not by coincidence. I do not believe in
1: coincidences. I call it divine manipulation. Coincidence or not, Ever since we moved in, the story of how a world-famous psychiatrist came to own our cottage is one I've wanted to unravel. The story begins with Father Dermot McNeice, a Servite friar at Ben Burb Priory in County Tyrone.
5: We would go for drives. It was a great pleasure to, to be with her, you know.
1: It was the mid-1980s, the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Father McNeice was part of a reconciliation team, working with grieving families. When Elizabeth came to give a seminar, the two became fast friends.
5: She was interested in every blade of grass. We would have to stop the car somewhere because it was a a flower she wasn't sure of or a colour that she hadn't seen before.
1: From his first impression, it was clear what was important to the eccentric doctor and what wasn't.
5: You wouldn't have picked her out in a crowd. I'd say she didn't buy too many clothes. Let's say she didn't dress to impress. That wasn't, that wasn't on her agenda at all.
1: On one of their drives, Father McNeice took Elizabeth into the Cooley Mountains, stopping off at a prehistoric stone passage tomb called Clontagora above Carlingford Lock. <laughs> we had driven
5: over the mountain and up the Flagstaff, and, and we had sat down at Atlantagora, at the Bronze Age cairns and uh, burial place. And she had, of course, usually, I think it was six therapists with her. Big Sharon was with us from Honolulu, and Sharon threw her arms around one of the stones and say, oh, goodness, there's such a life in this. And Elizabeth threw her arms around one of the stones too. And I sat over at the edge and until they were finished. And uh, Elizabeth came up and she says, Dermot, I must have my house near here. And I said, are you going to buy a house, Elizabeth? Well, yes, I am going to have a house in Ireland, a place in Ireland which will be mine, but it has to be near here. There is such energy here.
1: That Elizabeth would feel such intense life at an ancient place of the dead is not that surprising. As we'll see later in this story, to her, death and life were intrinsically linked ideas that started to form during her childhood, growing up in Switzerland.
6: I think she always had experiences with death when she was young, she almost died when she was five, she caught pneumonia.
1: That's Ken Ross, Elizabeth's son. He's the founder and director of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. He recalls one very important story, when his mother's pneumonia brought her to hospital.
6: She was in a bed next to another girl and the girl couldn't really speak, but she mouthed the words, don't worry about me, I'm going to see the angels, but you're going to be fine. And the next day my mother woke up, and the girl was gone, the bed was made, and the hospital staff didn't talk about her. And She's like, what happened to this girl? Why doesn't anyone talk about her? What did she mean, I'm gonna go see the angels? And how did she know I was gonna be fine and recover? You know. So that was her first experience with the denial of death. No one wanted to talk about what happened to the girl.
1: From the start, Elizabeth saw the world through other people's
6: eyes. She always had a, a bee in her bonnet that she had to help the underdog. You know, from the time she was in grade school, if, you know, the school bully was picking on someone, she would go beat up the school bully.
1: As a teenager, this feisty nature began to cause rifts at home. In an interview from the 1980s, Elizabeth remembered what happened when her father tried to tell her what to do with her life.
4: My father was a very authoritarian Swiss. You know, he told you what to order in a restaurant, what to eat, when to come home. Everything was his control. And he also decided that I had to join his business. And I'm not the businesswoman. I would have been an unhappy, miserable
6: grouch for the rest of my life. And I said, no, thank you. Back then, in the 30s, your your parents would tell you, what are you going to do with your life? And my mother was a straight-A student. She dreamed of going to Africa. But you know, her father told her that you're going to go work in my office as a secretary. And she was horrified. (laughs) So she said, there's no way I'm going to do that, you know? She became a doctor and a psychiatrist. She met an American in medical school. And he was a good New Yorker. So he talked her into going over to New York.
1: It was the late 1950s. Elizabeth worked in local hospitals while slowly settling into American life. But
6: something didn't sit right with her in the States. She saw the way Americans died, and she was disgusted by it.
4: You put makeup on a corpse, and rouge and lipstick and eye blue and stuff to make them look like they're only asleep. It's all phony.
1: More shocking was the silence surrounding death.
6: Nobody was dealing with this topic, and here was this woman who was willing to, you know, cross this line that no one wanted to talk about.
1: By the mid-1960s, Elizabeth and her American husband had moved west. While lecturing at the University of Chicago, she began to study how death and dying was treated in hospital. She described what she found.
4: One of the first impressions we had is that the staff is very uncomfortable with dying patients. There was a tremendous denial that anybody even dies in our hospital. When I originally looked for patients to be interviewed, I received the same answer on every floor, nobody's dying on our floor. And I was naive and went to the next floor, same answer until I covered the whole 600 bed hospital. And then only dawned on me that maybe the staff has a problem.
1: Elizabeth then did something that at the time was revolutionary and controversial. She brought the subject of death into her classroom.
7: There was no textbook on death and dying for medical students. There was nothing about death.
1: Dr. Mary Stefanazzi is a psychotherapist who trained and worked with Elizabeth in Ireland and in America. She said, how can medical
7: students and nursing students break? News to people about terminal illness if they have no experience or they haven't a clue about death and dying. So she said, who can teach them only dying patients?
1: Elizabeth then introduced an experimental teaching technique that would change both her life and the world. She brought dying patients to meet her students. She set up lecture theatre with
7: two people in a curtain, so the medical students were in the, the lecture theatre.
4: I just sat and listened to dying patients and tried to be their spokesman and to teach medical students and theology students and nurses and people in the field of social issues about what people really try to say. And if you can only sit and listen and hear what they say, they teach you not only about dying but about living. And to me, that's the greatest gift to be able to sit and listen and
7: hear And there wasn't a dry eye in the congregation, you know, listening. You know, they were just bowled over. And it touched their humanity, giving them a a kind of academic teaching on death and dying wouldn't have touched anybody. And the dying patients were thrilled to have their experience validated and to think they could help others.
1: From this work, Elizabeth began to record observations from her patients dealing with her impending death. From that, she, she
7: devised what she called the, the five stages of grief. The first stage was denial. Second was anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Those stages came from those interviews with dying patients.
1: With her five-stage model worked out, 20 years before she'd own our cottage in Ireland, Elizabeth began writing her first book.
6: She wrote it in 1968 over a course of about three months, just typing with two fingers at night.
1: Her son, Ken, was just eight years old, but he'll never forget how life at home changed when her book
6: on death and dying was published in 1969. The book came out, and it was like an explosion. I remember at the house... Yeah, the phones started ringing more and more and more, and then we got a second line, and then we got a secretary on the back porch, and then two secretaries, and then the mail, you know, came in bigger and bigger clumps, and then boxes, and then satchels.
1: Almost overnight, Ken's mother became a celebrity psychiatrist. She was on Time magazine, Life magazine.
7: You mentioned the name Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, everything, oh yeah, death and dying. It's like saying Guinness is good for you. It was like a logo, nearly
6: at one point I think her schedule went out about two and a half years. I mean, very rapidly we rarely got to see our mother.
4: Well, normally I have to get up at five fix a cup of coffee, take a plane at seven, usually miss my meals, then have an evening lecture, and then I see patients till two, three in the morning and then I sleep a few hours and then I catch a plane again to the next place.
1: Elizabeth spent the 1970s traveling the world, during which time her marriage would end, while her career flourished. She became known around the globe as the death and dying lady. But to those who knew her, Elizabeth was the exact opposite.
8: They may have said her as a death and dying lady, but Elizabeth was far more about living. Whether you knew it or not,
1: That's Liz Cummerton. Back in the 70s, as the troubles in Northern Ireland raged, she helped bring the Eastern practice of yoga to Belfast for the very first time.
8: I was teaching and working with a group, the Yoga Fellowship of Northern Ireland, which we created because of the troubles. And it was going into communities and doing gentle relaxation and yoga to help people. And if you could breathe in and breathe out, sure weren't you lucky. if you could do it with an awareness and a wee stretch, you didn't have to have the leotard on. But there used to be a comment, you couldn't buy a leotard in the Falls Road because everybody would go into these classes. In
1: 1983, Liz was on holidays along the North Coast when she saw an advert for one of Elizabeth's workshops.
8: And there she was coming to Holland to give a workshop followed by her visit to London. And it was in Cosmopolitan magazine and I was in poor shirt in the caravan. And I thought, I've got to get there. And I went down to the phone box, rang, and there was one place left in her workshop.
1: Liz will never forget her first impression of the woman who'd become a lifelong friend.
8: Went over my own, stayed in London with family, and went down to the workshop, and getting out of the taxi, a black taxi at the steps as I was coming in the drive, was this tousled lady, short hair with a huge case, as big as she was, and likely the same age. And I thought, I bet my boots, that is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She wasn't a tall person, slim body, hair that could have done with a lot of help. If a few do we wee auntie down the country with the wee cardigan on earlier, and slacks and bright beady eyes and wee glasses, that was elizabeth she wasn't there the knowing professor and she did not want you to be impressed by who or what she was
1: after the workshop liz set in motion the events whereby elizabeth came to own our cottage in the Cooley mountains
8: i said to elizabeth at the end would you come to northern ireland and she said of course
1: It was 1985 when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross arrived in Belfast.
8: We set up uh, a talk in Queen's University and about 500 people came to that. People were hungry for her words and hungry to hear what she, her attitude to life was.
1: This was during the Troubles, when death and dying was very much a part of Northern Ireland's story.
3: A single red rose was left by the bereaved families today
5: on the spot where the IRA bomb was planted last
3: ...came with sustained shooting at an army patrol in Dune and a sniper attack in Springfield Avenue. The warnings were inadequate.
5: The day became
3: known as Bloody Friday. Eleven people died, 130 were injured.
1: In the midst of the turmoil, Elizabeth gave a workshop at Benburb Priory, close to the Irish border. Here she met Father Dermot McNeese.
5: I worked in the in Ben Burb in the reconciliation services, uh, both in healing and in
1: uh, in counseling, care and so forth. Ben Burb hosted five-day retreats led by Elizabeth and her American therapeutic team.
5: It would have appeared in the papers and that that Elizabeth Kubel Ross was coming to Ireland and uh, the inquiries would have begun immediately.
1: The seminars used Elizabeth's five-stage model as a way of dealing with the conflict.
5: Remember it was the beginning or the middle of the troubles. People who were in need, people who were broken, absolutely suicidal. You have to think about it in terms of Northern Ireland engaging with her.
7: Grief is the, it's the essence of the human condition.
1: Dr Mary Stefanazzi attended one of the workshops at Benburb Priory and remembers how Elizabeth didn't shy away from the topic of death. People get scared like it's morbid
7: or, you know, you better forget about it and hope for the best. But she said, no, it's the only thing we're certain of as human beings. So if we don't confront that reality, we don't truly live.
1: In the topic of death, Elizabeth only saw life. People say, Oh, this is Elizabeth Kubler Ross and introduce her as the death
7: and dying lady. She wouldn't say oh thank you for the introduction, she'd say oh no, 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 I'm not the death and dying lady. I'm the life and living lady. And she'd correct whoever introduced her very promptly. Her workshop was life, death and transition. So how do we live, how do we die, and how do we transition from one stage of life to the other?
1: The workshops at Ben Burb drew people from all walks of life, each in their own way, engaging in Elizabeth's therapeutic process.
7: So she was sitting on top of the room, people were sitting on the floor, sitting on chairs, wherever people were comfortable. It wasn't like formal lecture style. And she'd begin and talk a bit about or unfinished business. To so say anything we haven't dealt with, anything we've dismissed and moved on. It might be about death, it might be about loss, but it could be about anything. To so say you started to tell your story, your mother, she didn't love you or whatever, and you felt rejected or whatever your personal story was.
4: I just sat and listened about what people really tried to say and if you can only sit and listen and hear what they say, they teach you not only about dying but about living. And to me that's the greatest gift... To be able to
5: sit and listen and hear. and the healing was in the telling, and that was the freedom of 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 the room. and all all this took was 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 respected, regardless of what anyone said, their faith, their religion, or sexuality or their family, uh, all of this was respected and I was taken on board the pain and the agony, you might say, the disillusionment, the brokenness about what had happened to this person in their life.
1: The workshops were a lifeline to people attending, but they were also giving something back to Elizabeth. By the late 80s, she'd become a frequent visitor to Ireland often working closely with Father McNeese. On one occasion, he decided to show the deaf and dying lady how the Irish treated the process of death.
5: I had brought her to a wake. I had mentioned to the people, uh, and they said that was fine. When it was awake, you know, in the house. It was for two nights. You don't get rid of the body for the second night.
1: Elizabeth had spent her life studying death and dying, but she'd never seen anything like this.
5: Oh, she was mesmerized by it. She sat down beside the bed, and so I said the prayers, and she experienced that, and she experienced uh, the blessing of the body in the bed. She experienced people kissing the corpse. uh, All that ritual around the body the remains as we say she watched things and she watched what was going on
8: she had a connection with death and a respect for death and she had a respect for the person who was going to die but she also had a respect for the people in the family that had to let that person go
5: she couldn't believe it she couldn't believe that the idea of the people queuing and coming to the house and queuing outside, and the cars parked down to the end of the lane. And the house was full of noise, of course. People would have begun telling stories, and stories multiplied. And, uh, and then maybe music started. Then after midnight, when the group has gotten smaller, the family settled down to keep the wake Then, very often, there's a drink share then. And so she said that Ireland, as far as she could see, she had been to no place that had a healthy bereavement practice like that. It was the first time that she had experienced healthy bereavement practices.
1: In the Irish wake... Elizabeth had found an even deeper connection to the country in which she was about to find a holiday home, our cottage.
6: My mother's traveling around, getting invited to speak all over the world, and something about the character of Ireland just spoke to her, you know? It was that country life of Switzerland has some kind of affinity with the country life in Ireland.
1: The Bronze Age tomb at Clontigora in the Cooley Mountains had been the spark for Elizabeth wanting her own home in Ireland. So it was fitting that just a few kilometres away, Father McNeice found her that home.
5: It just so happened that there came a house on the market, a very lovely cottage for sale, and from Clontigora, it's over the hill, and there is a corner Macleod and she just fell in love with it. She walked the lane and says, Jermot, try and
1: buy that. From the front, it looks like a traditional cottage, which we're told dates to the 1850s. When Elizabeth saw it the first time, it didn't have an indoor toilet, and all the cooking was done in the traditional hearth, and in the hearth, there's still a swing arm.
5: It was original, you might say, And she delighted in that, that it had sat, boarded into this earth for, maybe for some centuries, we didn't know. Then she was taken by the name Kornamukla. What does it mean? What does it mean? And it means place of the swine. She she says, that's wonderful, I always loved pigs. (laughs) So she was delighted.
1: Coming inside, through the red half door, I enter into the oldest part of the cottage with a stone fireplace that covers one side of the wall and deep inset windows. Coming through the house, there's a single narrow staircase that goes up to what we're told was Elizabeth's bedroom and where she wrote when she came here to visit.
5: She would come Perhaps if she was doing something in England, you know, or even in, in Paris. And she came home and she was delighted beyond expression. She would have a retreat, she would sit in the upstairs room, she would write, and she in the evening she'd relate with the local people, the three cottages around her.
3: My name is Margaret Phillips. I live in
1: Cornamuckla, Omeve. Margaret's now in her late 80s, but she has no trouble remembering the first time she met her new neighbour, Elizabeth Kugler ross
3: It was round about 1990, and from the first minute we met, it was just... Friendship from the word go. I would get word beforehand, a letter maybe saying, you know, that she'd be visiting on such a date. She loved to come here. She loved to have a nice bit of lunch or dinner with us and we would have a nice sing-song maybe at the tail end of the evening.
1: Father McNeese also remembers those Cornamuckla sing-songs.
5: Uh, we'd have a little bit of a, a session, if you want, with musicians from home down or maybe they were in Carlingford or whatever. She would be delighted with this. It was, let's say, unforgettable in one sense.
3: Got to of some lovely times. And there was one particular song she loved. It was an Irish song, Westering Home. Tras na na dante, dal siar, dal siar. Slán leis an uignesis, slán leis an geir. Gali is gali an rín. Gal bag go goh heron. Mwintur an eir, siad car must
1: Margaret Phillips isn't the only one who remembers the year Elizabeth moved to Cornamukla.
9: We're just leaving my house. We're going onto a small laneway. If we face east, we're just looking straight in to Waring Point, to the harbour. And if we face west, we're looking straight up into the flagstaff and onto the mountains. My name is Marian Nocton, I live at the end of the laneway and I was privileged to say Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was my neighbour. My first meeting of Elizabeth was one beautiful summer's morning. I was going up the laneway to get eggs from Bridget. She had 70 hens and I met Faeley and this lady hanging over uh, the gate.
1: Faeli and Bridget have both passed on, but at the time, they owned a small cottage across from Elizabeth.
9: When I approached, uh, Faeli said, Good morning, Marion, and this is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And the first thing they offered me was uh, a cup of rye, which everybody knows is whiskey, and dark Belgian chocolate. Seemingly, they liked to have this every morning that Elizabeth stayed here. And at 10 o'clock in the morning... Rye and chocolate biscuits, all I wanted was my boiled egg and two slices of toast.
1: Bridget and Faley were definitely the characters of the lane, and Father McNeice remembers how Elizabeth took to them.
5: On the left-hand side was old Faley and Bridget. And she so loved them, and that's why she brought them to America.
1: Elizabeth hoped to take the old couple to a farm she owned in Virginia, in the United States, but needed the neighbours to make it happen.
9: Elizabeth had given me strict instructions that Faley and Bridget were not to pack anything. She was supplying everything. They were to go with empty suitcases, and uh, they took her at her wards.
1: On the lane, the trips become Legend. But Father McNeice believes it wasn't just about giving her favorite couple a foreign holiday.
5: Elizabeth was, I think, bringing them out of the the closeness of their situation and with the troubles around them on the other side of the border, but still very close to all the troubles. She brought them out for a rest. She says, it'll do you good. They had, let's just say, a new experience.
1: Elizabeth had bought the farm where she'd taken Bridget and Fayley back in 1985. Nestled in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, this was her permanent home in America by the early 1990s and transformed it into a retreat center.
7: She'd built a purpose-built workshop
1: center, a beautiful timber building.
7: You know, everything was state-of-the-art. There was a big Swiss flag hanging outside.
1: Dr. Mary Stefanazzi travelled over to the United States to be a staff member at the first workshop.
7: There was no room for us, for the staff. Our, our rooms were given to participants, so we stayed in our house with bunk beds.
1: The house had character, Elizabeth's character. She was the real thrifty Swiss, like she never
7: threw out a newspaper or a bit of twine. or you know, the house was full of junk.
1: The Virginia farm had become her home, and her passion. It was also part of a new cause she'd utterly devoted herself to.
3: It's mysterious, it's deadly,
6: and it's baffling medical science. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome.
3: The AIDS epidemic, said the headlines is spreading so rapidly that it threatens to overwhelm San Francisco's financial ability to deal years, with. it.
5: Some information from could become one of the top 10 causes of death in the United States
6: in 5 short years. The AIDS death toll could strike. So the AIDS crisis came along, people were literally abandoning their babies in hospitals because they had AIDS. You know, they didn't know what to do with the babies and they were kind of afraid of the babies. So they just left them and that really triggered something in my mother. So she said, I'm gonna bring these babies to my farm, you know, and they'll get love and compassion and touch. And, you know, at least we can give them just a little bit of love and comfort.
1: Liz Cummerton recalls Elizabeth's grand vision She intended bringing
8: AIDS babies down to the farm and to give them a loving environment. And she'd had good food for them, natural veg, everything, she'd have had everything.
1: Now in her 60s, Elizabeth was determined to make her dream a reality. But for a conservative Virginia county, her idea of housing babies with AIDS was a step too far.
6: When she announced that to the county, (laughs) they were not very impressed. They had a county meeting, almost the entire county showed up and they said, you're not gonna do it. We're not gonna give you permission and we're not gonna zone your property for that. And you know, my mother said, well, I don't care. This is the right thing to do and I'm gonna do it.
1: Since she was a child, Elizabeth had been uncompromising. But now this fearlessness put her in physical danger as locals stood in the way of her plans.
6: She had to have a police escort home, started getting death threats, bullets were being fired through our windows, people with shotguns were hanging out in front of our farm.
8: They were scared that she would bring AIDS into their lives. And so the shot in the windows to set the place
2: on fire.
1: Her dream of creating a haven for babies with AIDS would never be realized
2: were burned out of your home for trying to adopt 20 AIDS babies on the farm in Virginia, and everyone knows it was arson. Nothing's ever been been done about it. No, that was a blessing because I never had to pack. (laughs) I'm I'm a collector and my house is full
4: of stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's taken me a year or two years to pack all my stuff to move. But you lost all your father's
2: diaries. You lost things that cannot
4: be replaced. yes. everything. It was a blessing. The only thing I miss once in a while, my diaries and my
3: photographs.
1: As Elizabeth worked through the loss of her home, retreat center, and most of her belongings, our cottage back on the Cooley Peninsula began to fill a void left by the fire.
6: When she got to Ireland, I think it was her ideal of the peace that she was missing back in Virginia on our farm
8: she had that as a haven for herself she just loved looking out the front door down at the field in front and right down
5: in a way it was a godsend it was a little place her irish home which she delighted in
8: she was at home and when you go home you're happy
1: Elizabeth was now nearly 70 years of age. Her life of world travel and non-stop engagements starting to take its toll.
3: On one of her holidays home, she told me she was travelling and suddenly she felt she was having a stroke. Little by little, her visits just sort of
1: it out. Margaret Phillips continued getting letters from Elizabeth, who now lived with her son in Arizona. But she was no longer able to visit the cottage. Since she published on Death and Dying in 1969, Elizabeth had become an international celebrity. So with her health failing, it's not surprising that Oprah Winfrey, made a point of interviewing her one last time.
2: I have a special interview today. One of the world's leading experts on death and dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is now herself preparing to die. So the death and dying lady was getting ready to die. But I went out to Arizona to talk to her and found out that she's not so keen on dying right now. (laughs) She's not so keen on dying right now. I walked in expecting to find her, like, dying. And she said, well, she's kind of about it right now. I asked her to talk about how she feels now that she is reaching the end of her life. Are you fighting to live or are you willing There are I... days
4: when I'm up to here and don't want to any part of it and there are days when I think maybe it's worthwhile.
2: Mm-hmm. Did you go through those stages yourself of that? I was
4: angry, angry, angry and enraged. Nothing but anger and negative. So no
2: denial for you? No, are you kidding? No.
4: (laughs) No no denial. Just angry. No bargaining.
2: No bargaining. I
4: give God hell. I called him every name in the book in every language. Mm -hmm.
1: In Arizona, Elizabeth was now cared for by her son, Ken.
6: But Finally, about, uh, let's say about six weeks before she died, she said to me out of the blue, Kenneth, I don't want to die and then she changed the subject and she never mentioned it again. And it took me years of thinking about this, but I realized when my mother finally let go of the last anger and learned her final lesson, she was allowed to graduate as she called it and that's exactly what you know she taught.
1: Her life's work had been about death and dying, encapsulated in her iconic five stages of grief. Now, she followed them herself.
6: And so when my mother finally let go of that anger, <laughs> she was off in a few weeks. It was really amazing to watch her, you know, her lessons. Like, wow, she really knew what she was talking about.
1: <laughs> According to the Land Registry folio, our cottage went out of Elizabeth's ownership on March 3, 2004. Six months later, she died. But what I found out in speaking to those who knew Elizabeth, her memory is very much still alive here. When I went to
8: see her in Phoenix, I brought her in a piece of rosemary with a bloom, a beautiful blue flower. I said, Elizabeth, you know rosemary's for remembrance. And she looked at me and she said, Liz, I don't need rosemary to remember you. That's the difference you made for people. I don't know if you ever thought who you'd love to have with you when you died. Well, I would have had her any day.
3: She loved life. She really loved life. And no matter where she went, she just spread love. I loved her. Car must leave so luck is soll spe romer got teetheth A gearin' gi dump she mori do him o weture a straslin a dumptadol shears ol sheer s sla les an o ignisis slan
0: You've been listening to The Life and Living Lady. It was narrated by Chris Nickel and produced by Chris Nickel and Little Road Productions, along with myself, Nicoline Greer. Sound supervision was by Mark Dwyer. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. And until the next time, thanks for listening.